Good morning. My name is David Holcomb, and I have the privilege of serving the discipleship ministries here at River Oaks. And it is, it is so good to be with you this morning. It's really good to be back with you. It makes me think of the psalm that says, I was glad, I rejoiced with gladness when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I hope that you share in that gladness today as well. You know, and I would tell you that Sunday mornings together with you and all of the activity that occurs here on, on these mornings, it, it has always topped my list of favorite glad places to be. Or maybe the definition I would give to a, a happy place. I, do you guys know that term, happy place? All right, happy places, uh, you know, that, that place that when you're in them, that special, you know, location or setting or context that when you're in it, there's no other place you would rather be. In fact, so much so that you find yourself maybe daydreaming about that happy place or, uh, you know, maybe sometimes when you just want to get away, uh, that happy place provides at least a temporary retreat from our present troubles. And so here with you is a happy place of mine. I've got a short list. There's just a few others. There's, there's small group night, Wednesday nights, no other place I'd rather be, I promise you. There's Run for God Mondays in the spring, happy place. There's the, uh, there's the times with family, holidays and special occasions, happy place. The starting line of a big road race, love it, love that environment. Uh, the YMCA, happy place. La Coretta on Fajita Friday, <laughs> woo, amen. Mui, happy place. There's one more. There's one more in addition to that, that one that makes me smile every time I think about it, and one that I'd like to share with you just a few more details as a way of an introduction into our teaching this morning. I think it can help set the perspective and maybe give us an image of where we encounter the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans today. Now that, that final happy place for me is a spot that exists inside of Yosemite National Park. It's known as Half Dome. Maybe some of you are familiar with Half Dome. I became acquainted with Half Dome the year that I turned 40 years old. We were just a few weeks away from relocating from Northern California to North Carolina when some of our friends, some college guys at the campus ministry at UC Davis had suggested that uh, I join them on a hike of Half Dome. Sort of a farewell send-off from our time there. And, uh, you know, I said yes immediately, right? Who doesn't want to visit the national parks? Have you ever said yes to something only to discover that maybe you should have learned something about it before you said yes? <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Half Dome, it is a 17-mile round-trip hike ascending over 5,000 feet, culminating in this last 400 feet of near vertical climb by the assistance of cable handrails. And I'll tell you that I knew that I was in trouble on my very first internet, internet search of the subject. It came back as how not to die on Half Dome. <laughs> the good news, if you were to call it that, was that to the, to the guy, each of them assured me and affirmed that they could collectively carry me back down if necessary. And so, you know, what a day, though. We, we made this hike, and, and shortly after starting out from the trailhead, this easy hike starts to turn uphill a bit, right, over these massive rock steps and along these majestic waterfalls that are just misting rain and raining it everywhere on you. Uh, and, and soon I know that the old man of the group started to sound a lot like your five-year-old in the backseat of a long car ride. Are we there yet? 
are we there yet? Come on, guys. Are we? And, and the longer we hiked, the more challenging it became until finally we reached the base of that final descent. Those cables, those cables, it, it was the most exhilarating and most terrifying 45 minutes of my life. It continues to be just, uh, you know, trying to be careful to secure a great grasp with every hold, making sure to get solid footing with every step, ensuring that no matter what else I did, careful not to look down. And eventually we made it to the top and over and crested the summit. And I mean, just wow, wow, beautiful. What a view, breathtaking. If ever there was a moment for which the view was worth the climb, it was right there and right here for, for me. The blisters, the heat, the fatigue, the nerves, all totally worth it. And I know that even as I recount my experience with you, some of you can already envision similar experiences. You know, maybe it was Hanging Rock. Maybe it was Pilot Mountain. Maybe it was just fill in the blank. Maybe it was figuratively where a demanding and difficult and challenging climb, a journey, resulted and rewarded you in a view that was just amazing of God's created beauty, or maybe even better, of God himself. This morning, this morning, we are going to arrive together at another type of summit, and it's going to be an equal, if not greater, view uh, that we are rewarded with. It is the reward for having climbed a massive, massive theological mountain of critical doctrine over these past several months, better known as the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. You know, if you've been with us, you know that we started out back in February. And we started along the trail with the consequences and the reality of sin. And we started to move onward and upward through justification by faith the gift of God's grace, the purpose of the law, the work of Christ on the cross, the, uh, the receipt of righteousness, the fact that there is therefore no condemnation for those who confess and believe, on and on and on for 11 chapters, methodically climbing. And I'm sure at time, it's been slow going. It's been arduous. It's been tough sledding. And maybe some of you were wondering, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then last week, Pastor Andrew guided us masterfully through this uh, last daunting passage, the mercy of God with Israel. And now this morning, we reach the summit because this morning the Apostle Paul is transitioning his entire letter from a focus on theology to a, uh, a, a model of doxology. He is going from teaching the pillars of salvation to modeling out the praise for salvation. He has shared all the doctrine, all the theology that God has intended for him to share over these past 11 chapters. And before he moves on to tell us what we're supposed to do with it, how believers are supposed to enact it and apply it, he spends these four verses just in an outburst of seemingly spontaneous praise and worship. And it's a wonderful demonstration today of the proper response for someone who fully grasped God's plan of salvation. Not to boast that one has fully grasped the plan of salvation, but to honor God with great praise. And so this week, the view is worship itself. And it's the happy place where what we've learned 
chapters 1 through 11, is going to meet up with who we love, verses 33 through 36 this morning. And so uh, I hope with that perspective, that image, that textual context, uh, we, uh, we are ready to move into this passage, and I'd like for us to read it once more. Again, having just recorded the, uh, the greatest theological teaching in all of the New Testament, Paul now proclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So this morning, out of this passage, I would like for us to consider three principles of biblical worship. They're not all the principles that we can build on out of this passage, but three principles that come to mind for me as we, we look at this passage. The first is this. Worship is anchored in God's character. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. You notice how Paul starts off this moment of worship? He's calling out the attributes of God. A few of those traits that make God, God. They make Him who He is. It's, it's a similar declaration that we see throughout Scripture whenever there is personal and or corporate praise. It's centered on the characteristics of God. And, and I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but when I reflect back on my personal times of praise and prayer and worship, it seems like I'm always leading with me, my needs, my circumstances, my, my desire that God intervene on behalf of of, of someone else, my petitions. And it seems like I spend less time actually uh, praising and worshiping God for who He is. And, and I know the Lord wants us to bring all of that before Him. He wants us to share our needs and our circumstances. But I, I can't help but feel convicted when I see uh, the example of Paul. I see it throughout Scripture. And then I see exactly what Jesus teaches us. Even when He teaches us how to pray, we think back to the passage on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. What does he say? He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be God's name. Initiating our prayer with a, a recognition of the reverence and the honor and the holiness of God's name. And this is exactly how Paul initiates this time of worship as well. Revering and honoring God for who he is. Anchoring this time in the characteristics of God. Now, what does he say specifically? Let's just break this down a little bit. He says, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. The word for vastness, uh, uh, limitless, fullness, abundance. And he says the abundance of these three particular traits. The first of those is the riches of God. What riches? All riches. Physical riches spiritual riches, moral riches, the treasures, the blessings, how, how much wealth there is. And the word he uses here for riches is an implication of, uh, of flowing over. It's abundantly more than is necessary. It spills over from God, riches of God, but also the depth of God's wisdom and his knowledge. We think, well, well that's pretty much the same thing. No, 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 not at all. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever met someone who's very knowledgeable and just not very wise. 
It's the same thing here. God's saying, you know, like the explanation that knowledge is the gathering of information, wisdom is knowing what to do with that information. So all there is to know is found in God. And the most wise way that knowledge can actually be worked out is found in God. Knowledge and wisdom and overflowing and abundance from God. And I praise that. I worship that. And then there are two words that that Paul uses that in our English Bible you might have translated as unsearchable, uh, inscrutable, unfathomable, untraceable. Well, here these words do really pretty much have the same primary meaning. It's, It's a Greek word. The root is used in both of these words exactly. And I find this really, really interesting. That Greek word is really a hunting, a hunting word. It talks about when you track down an animal by following its trail. When you, when you look for the, the tracks and the scents, and that's the way that you actually hunt that animal down. And, and this is, I think it's beautiful what Paul's saying then, if we think about it. God, your judgment, your ways, your plans, your mind, we, in our human logic and reasoning, we try to track that down. We try to trace them down, but they can't be followed. They can't be tracked. They are beyond our ability to comprehend As the prophet Isaiah would declare, they are just simply not our ways. And so (laughs) that that could be be hard to accept, right? It can be hard to accept, to to acknowledge, and then to worship that God's ways we can't understand. They're untrackable. Inquiring minds want to know. That's the curiosity that we have. And so in Romans, we might have gone through these past 11 chapters And we might have been questioning this plan of salvation. Why has it worked out in this way? In our logic, in our reasoning, it just doesn't seem fair that some might live and some might perish. In our logic, why can't we earn salvation? Hard work's a good thing. Why is it faith alone? Why must there be sufferings in this present time? All of these things we've looked at, maybe we've started to question them on and on and on. And and there are those questions that, you know, we have our list that we want to ask God uh, when we get before him. But the example of Paul, after going through it all, is that um, those questions can wait. Those questions can wait because in the here and now, worship is the priority. On this side of eternity, our posture is praising God for knowing more than us. His unsearchable mercy and grace, his unfathomable wisdom, his unmatched riches, they are so much more than sufficient. And I want to praise God for that. And you know, when you think about this, um, it just sort of dawned on me. Isn't a God whose ways that we actually understand and comprehend, isn't that a pretty fairly limited God? You know, when I'm around some of you, some of you um, who are electricians, Doctors, pilots, mechanics, and the list could probably go on and on and on. Um, What you do is beyond me. I don't get most of that stuff. I I ask you questions and you try to even give me simple language, layman's language in, in your answers, and I still don't generally get it. But guess what? I'm really okay with that. I'm just grateful that you know a whole lot more about what you're doing, that when you pilot my plane, you know a lot more about that than I do. And so I praise you for that. I I, I thank you for that. And I think that's a great relief when we don't have to completely understand how and why God works. 
I mean, there, there is, and don't, don't get me wrong from this, there is a, a lifetime of scriptural knowledge and wisdom that we are called to learn. We're called to, to love and we're called to live out. But the ways of God, his reasonings and his logic, that's not part of that list. And, and I do hope that's liberating. I hope that especially for those that I've seen before, I've had conversations, some of you just stop short from the ability of all-out worship because you don't understand everything about God's ways. And so if, if this is you, I would encourage you to, to praise God like the Apostle Paul. Praise Him for what He's revealed to you. And then praise Him for what He will never reveal to you. Worship, it's anchored, it's grounded, it's initiated by who God is. That's the first principle. I, I think the second biblical principle that we see from this passage in Paul here is uh, that worship is informed through God's Word. And I think, put another way, the study of God's Word moves us toward and directs us in our worship. So to that point, Paul's passed along, as we've talked, a tremendous amount of truth, theological knowledge. And here's the thing, none of it has been passed along to simply make us smarter. I, I think about how Paul even warned the Corinthians in this. He said that knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge for knowledge's sake alone, uh, he had a word for it. It was prideful. It would puff us up with pride. And so if the learning of Scripture, if what we've been doing for the last eight months is not a matter of us just filling our knowledge tank, then, then what is it? What is it? And I think the better question is really, and I, I don't know if we ever think about this much, what is the primary purpose of Bible study? What is the primary purpose of Bible study? What we're doing here, what you might do in your small group, your journey group, the equipping class, women of the word, um, what you might do in your personal time, in your daily Bible reading, why? What is the primary purpose of that? Some of us, might say it's to gain greater insight into Bible facts, uh, to, to learn how to unpack meanings and interpretations, to re retain the details, to memorize the verses. That's great. I, I, I'm there with you. I think that's awesome. That's not the primary point of Bible study. Some of us, though, we see Scripture study as more practical, right? Scripture gives us great advice on how to improve our relationships, how to have a fulfilling career, how to, uh, how to make decisions. The Bible is full of wise counsel for ordering our life. That's not the primary purpose of Bible study. And then there's some of us who, who, who say, and I would say I'm also in this camp, who think the Bible is just wonderful, wonderful, beautiful literature. We love the stories of the Bible. We love the poetry of the Bible. Uh, we love the history of the Bible. It is so much better than an afternoon at Barnes & Noble. I promise you, it's the most beautiful book ever written. It's still not the primary point of Bible study. All of these reasons are wonderful for digging into God's Word. They're valid. They're good. But we can never lose sight that the primary purpose of studying God's Word is first and foremost because it is a gateway into praising God. Bible study does not primarily fill our heads with knowledge, but it turns our hearts to gratitude. For God. Scripture is not solely a resource of life advice, but it is a source of amazement for the fact that we have access to eternal life. God's Word is not intended to have heroes that we emulate, but a Lord and a Savior for whom to marvel at and to adore. 
That's the primary purpose of Bible study. I love, I love, I love what the highly respected, wonderfully brilliant theologian, pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, served Westminster Chapel in London for over 30 years. What he said about his preaching uh, was that I spend half of my time convicting Christians to study doctrine, and the other half reminding them that doctrine is never the point. Worship is the point. And so Scripture should prompt us and move us as we, as we go through it uh, to worship, but it should, it should inform us in worship with truth. Scriptural truth should always be the basis for the song lyrics that we sing in worship. Scriptural truth should be the basis for the words that we lift up in our praise of prayers. Scriptural basis should be how we live out our day, how we worship by way of our life. Good biblical theology is that necessary climb because it informs the acceptable and pleasing worship of God. Where do we see this? We see this right here in in this passage from Paul. Notice how Paul draws from his vast knowledge of Scripture. I mean, he, he uh, he was a Jew among Jews. He knew all of the old Hebrew Scripture, and he used it not to, to go out and boast about what he knew, but to praise and worship. And look what he does. Verse uh, 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? He takes this from Isaiah 40, where Isaiah the prophet had been proclaiming the greatness of God. And now Paul's reflecting the same greatness, except he's applying it to the greatness of God's salvation plan for restoring falling humanity. In a sense, he's saying, God, who, who could ever suggest anything that you've not already thought about? As I've been recording this, who could ever suggest anything to you? Nobody can counsel you. No one can call you to account for your salvation plan. How worthy you are of praise. And then in verse 35, he he pulls from an allusion, really, from Job 41. He says, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, why would he pull from Job uh, in this moment of praise? Well, just briefly, if we go back to where Job is, this is toward the end of of Job. And uh, Job has has been challenging God, questioning God, God, ultimately shaking his fist at God. Uh, questioning God's motives, his understanding, his, his plans for his life, demanding to know why. And in uh, beginning in chapter 38 through 41, God lays out this long rebuke of Job, a response to Job. And it includes this reminders that he, God, he made it all, he owns it all, and nobody owes him anything. In, in other words, there, there was a little bit of a uh, putting Job in his place is going on here. And because no one can give him anything, he doesn't already have. You know, I, I, uh, as a side note, I love Job. I hope, I've said often that it's, it's probably one of my, uh, it resonates with me more than any other book of the Bible. And I think it really resonates because it really disturbs our sort of self-perceived notions of who we are before God and who God is before us. And so this is what's going on. And again, Paul draws from it, but why? That seems kind of an odd verse to pull out. I think it's because over and over and over, Paul has been emphasizing through the gospel teaching this idea of grace. Grace, 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 grace. It's really the theme of the gospel that we see in these 11 chapters. Our works can never purchase our salvation. And if we did, if we did try to work or earn anything for God's favor, well, it just wouldn't be grace. 
And so in this, we hear Paul's words say, God, you freely give us this grace. You're the originator and the owner of the grace and salvation. Our works, our efforts, our gifts can never purchase or repay you for your grace. No one can repay you for that. And so Scripture, as we see here in this moment of worship, it directs us, it moves us. It's the reason that we are in God's Word, but Scripture into worship, but it's also informing our worship. And then a last principle. The third principle I think on worship we can see is that worship is deepened by God's sovereignty. And probably better put, worship is deepened by the understanding of God's sovereignty. 36 reads, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. The final thought of Paul's doxology and I believe it's an indication because we see it elsewhere in his letters, an indication of the great joy Paul has for celebrating God's sovereign nature. He puts it this way. So, so from him are all things. He is creator God. He was in the beginning. He is the beginning. He is the source of everything that exists. And that should deepen our worship. Through him are all things. He is sustainer God. He speaks and things happen. Worlds remain and one day worlds will be restored because of what God does and what God says. And that should deepen our worship. And then also to him are all things. God is not only the source and the sustainer, but God is the purpose for which all things exist. God's expectation is that we are fully submitted to him. All that we are, all that we have, all of our circumstances, all of our blessings, all of our burdens are to be laid over to him. All things. I mentioned he, he shares this throughout scripture. One of the places that comes to mind is his letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1 of Colossians, we read something almost, almost identical. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul just worship, worship, worships. A great joy for the acknowledgement that God is our all-powerful God, all-knowing God, all-present God. And this same recognition as we look at this plan of salvation that has just been presented, I think it relates the same way, that acknowledgement. It's, it's a relation, acknowledgement of the plan from Genesis to Revelation of salvation. Uh, throughout that scripture, we see evidence that salvation is from God. It was created and ordained and acted at the right hour, perfected for eternity. Salvation is through God, through the prophecies, through him becoming flesh and dwelling among us, through dying on the cross, through resurrection, through sending the Spirit, for which we now can go tell the good news of that salvation. And salvation is to God. I think this is really really important if you and i have been restored in relationship to god by grace through faith then our salvation is a living testimony to the glory of god your life my life is offered daily as a as a sacrifice to be submitted to god so salvation itself is rightly from and through and to god as well he closes the passage his amen is a bottom line 
after 11 chapters of doctrine and these four verses of praise, the bottom line is, to God be the glory forever. Above all else, may God forever receive the highest of glory and honor. And may that be the strongest desires of our heart. But here's the thing. That runs counter to really the natural desire of our heart. Right? When, when, when we think about our sinful nature, our human nature, I like what it's been said is that we've been, when we were born, we were born because of the fall as glory junkies. We've been born as glory junkies. We, we know that we've been designed to worship someone or something. It's missing. We're searching for it. We're seeking it. And so until we are restored to God, uh, we are constantly addicted to idolizing everything around us. We bow down at the altar of culture. We bow down at the altar of celebrity. We bow down at the altar of self. But the witness of Scripture, and I'm sure the testimony of many of you in this room is that we are only truly fully satisfied when we direct the aim of our worship and we bow down before the only one deserving of it, Jesus the Christ. The one for who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so in all of that, may, may our worship, personal, private worship, collective, corporate worship, may it be grounded in who God is, May it be guided by Scripture. May it be deepened by the realization and recognition of God's sovereignty. What a powerful God we serve. And may it be aimed toward Jesus. Four, I forgot how many points I got. Four closing points of reflection by way of application. In conclusion, number one, let's purpose Bible study for worship. Let's, let's think about this week our time in God's Word do we primarily view Bible study as a means for personal gain, for knowledge, for advice, for enjoyment? Commit to praising God for what you actually discover about Him in His Word. Be intentional. Number two, let's praise God's character when His ways are unknown. Praise God for all the ways that God has revealed Himself to us, and then turn around and praise God for all the ways that He will never reveal Himself to us, the unsearchable ways. Praise God that he is not limited to our understanding. And as a bonus, uh, read Job 38 through 42. I really would encourage you to do that for an understanding of what's going on there. Number three, um, let's worship God's sovereignty. Praise God as creator, sustainer, almighty. He's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Praise him that he is God alone and we are not. And then finally, a final point of reflection. I realize that in this room or online, there are many who have actually never experienced genuine worship. So I would invite you to worship. I would invite you, as the Apostle Paul has invited all of us, to confess that Jesus is Lord, to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and in that, be assured of an eternal salvation through this plan that God has laid out and worked out and designed and ordered. And I would invite you to contact one of us here at the church. After the service this morning, write it on a Hey, I'm Here card. Come by and see us. It is our greatest calling to answer your curiosities about that, to talk through it, to listen to your decisions. So an invitation to worship. On May 29, 1864, uh, the well-known 
And I, I would claim a sort of kindred spirit in the faith of mine, English pastor uh, Charles Spurgeon. He closed his sermon on Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. And he did so by telling his congregation the following. Dear friends, if you will meditate upon this text this afternoon, of him and through him and to him are all things, I am sure you will be led to fall on your knees with the apostle and to say to him, be glory forever. And then you will rise up and practically in your life give him honor, putting the amen to this doxology by your own individual life of worship toward your great and gracious Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we do. We praise you for the depth, the riches, the depth of your wisdom, the depth of your knowledge. Lord, we praise you that in so many ways you have revealed yourself to us through your word, uh, through your world. And yet in so many ways, Lord, uh, you are unsearchable, unfathomable. And we praise you for that as well. We praise that you are not limited to our fallen minds and our distorted logic and reasoning. Lord, as we move through this week, we pray that your word and your spirit, it would move us and prompt us and inform us in our worship. We pray that our worship would be a light of the gospel in the darkness and would be seen and would be a comforting light to those who are seeking to know you. And Lord, we pray that you and you alone would receive the glory forever and ever. Amen.